Father, we come into your presence with thanksgiving. We come into your presence with joy for the gift you've given us in Jesus. Father, we long to adore you more, your loving character that is revealed so perfectly in Jesus. We long to appreciate this infinite gift you've given us more. And I ask that you would touch our hearts in a special way this morning. You'd speak to our hearts. Father, in the silence of our own hearts right now, we just want to give you an opportunity to speak to us. Lord, to, to clear away everything else in our minds, to give us a focus on you, and to give us ears to hear. Lord, we just want to lift up our hearts in silence to you right now. Thank you. You who did not withhold your own son, as it says in Romans 8.32, how would you not with him freely give us all things? I know that this morning you want to bless us with a blessing beyond what we expected walking in here. A blessing that's above and beyond anything that we could ask or think. Lord, open our eyes and hearts and ears to receive it. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. I want to put a picture up on the screen for you to see if any of you know who this gentleman was. Now this, uh, I'm quite confident that none of you were alive during World War II, but does anybody recognize World War I? I'm sorry, <laughs> World War II, some of you probably were. World War I, does anybody recognize who this individual is? Anybody out there recognize who this is? No, not quite, not Kaiser. Any other guesses? This is John J. Pershing. John J. Pershing is his name. Now, John J. Pershing uh, grew up and decided that he wanted, at first he didn't want to join the military. He, uh, he didn't come out expecting to, to be a military professional. That wasn't his goal at first in life. But eventually, with all that was going on in the world, he was entered into the service, and he, he served in different military capacities, and he quickly was elevated in service. In fact, at one point, he was at, elevated to general over 800 people who had superiority, who had higher levels that, that should have been elevated before him, but it was because of some of his relationships, some of his uh, closeness to, uh, the, uh, um, to to the president, actually, of the United States. He was married to a senator's daughter. He knew the president of the United States, and so he was immediately elected to uh, become a general. Now, when World War I came around, he was... The United States wasn't at first involved in World War I. In 1914, you know that, that it was a, a war that we tried to stay out of. We didn't want to jump in as, as Americans. We didn't want to be involved in it. And so... John J. Pershing was out fighting other battles, actually. At one point, there was uh, Pancho, de Pancho Villa, I don't know if you've heard of him before, a Mexican raider who came to our southern borders and started raiding some of our towns. And so the president especially appointed for John J. Pershing, he said, you go and you hunt him down. He was like his hitman. He said, you go, you're tough, you're strong, you take some men, and you hunt him down in Mexico. And so he went off into Mexico chasing around Pancho Villa, around Mexico, trying to hunt him down, trying to uh, finally capture him. They never did capture him, but were able to take out a lot of his men and to significantly diminish 
Pancho Villa's ability to attack our cities. Well, when things became more serious in World War I, it was towards the end of World War I that the United States finally became involved, and there was the Pacific Front, but on the Western Front, when they decided that they needed to send the American Expeditionary Force to fight in Europe, they needed to choose the best general that they had. And they chose John J. Pershing. And they said, we need you to go. And as he went into uh, Europe, the, the, the French and the, the English wanted for him to just have his military force become a part of theirs. Because at first, he was only given 160,000 men. And they said, you know, just have your army units come in and be a part of ours. But he began to train his men until, and began to draft people until they had 2 million men in the forces. And of those 2 million men, they were well trained. And he began to lead them and said, no, we're not going to join with the others, but we're going to start our own uh, parts in this battle. And we're going to, to wage war ourselves. And at one point, he was in the Ergon Forest in Germany, which there was... At that time, they engaged something like 50 different units of the German army as they were going around and fighting in this forest. There was intense fighting, intense casualties took place, but General Pershing just kept pushing them forward, kept pushing them forward. And it was through that that the German forces were intensely weakened and that this power that was beginning to, to take over Europe was pushed back through General Pershing's fighting and leading his men to fight. And it was in November 11 of of 1914 that finally the Germans came together with the Europeans, the other European nations, and they they finally signed the armistice, which later became the Versailles Peace Treaty. But here's the thing. When General John Pershing even though this came about through all that he was doing, through his attacks in the forest, through what he was doing against the Germans, he wasn't too happy about them signing this peace treaty, this armistice treaty. In fact, he began, actually he continued fighting for a whole other day. He kept his men fighting. Historians later looked back on that and wondered if this was treason or what it was that he was doing, but he kept people fighting in spite of the treaty. And he wrote letters to the European nations saying that that we need to keep fighting. We need to fight until all of Germany is stopped. And we'll get into a little bit later why that might have been, why he didn't want for there to be a peace treaty. But after the war, within the next year, you see that he was given a status by the President of the United States that was given to no other living military person before That is General of Armies. John J. Pershing, even though you didn't know his name, he's actually given the highest rank possible for a military person, and that is General of Armies. Later on in the 1960s, I believe it was, they took and they put George Washington, even though he was long since gone posthumously, they put this title on him and said, well, he was also General of Armies because we can't have this guy, John Pershing, as General of Armies while... George Washington never achieved that rank. At the time, it was first a five-star, golden star position, but then when later they came up with five-star generals, they, they named it the six-star general position. 
No man has ever received this since he and George Washington have received this, but he was given this high title, this, this high honor, because he had diligently fought. He'd sought to destroy the enemy. He'd sought to do whatever it takes. He was known as this general who would fight strongly and send his men out and not hold nothing back. And because of that, the president saw fit to raise him to this high rank. Now, what does this battle have to do with Christmas? It seems the exact opposite of Christmas, doesn't it? To to think of war, to think of battle, when you think about Christmas. But notice some of the things that the angels are saying when they talk about Christmas, in the Christmas story. Go with me to Matthew chapter 1. You see, there's a, a bigger story than what we normally notice in our nativity scene going on in the Christmas story. In Matthew chapter 1, when the angel appears to Joseph and lets him know that he's going to have a son and that it's okay, Mary is with child, but it's with, she's with child through the Holy Spirit. In Matthew chapter 1, and verse 23, we looked at it last week. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Jesus wasn't content to sit in heaven and try to save us from there, but he wanted to come very close to us. He wanted to come as close as possible to us. God came and took on human flesh, fully human. In the throne of the universe, there beats a human heart. There is a human brain. There is human lungs. There are human muscles in a glorified body, a resurrected body. But nonetheless, Jesus, the God of all creation, the God of the universe, our Creator for all of eternity, is one with you and me, and that He's part of the human family. That's an amazing thing. He is God with us, God in human flesh. But before that, in verse 21, it says, And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus. You know what the name Jesus means? It's a Hebrew name, Yeshua or Joshua. It's not all that uncommon name in the Old Testament. They shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Salvation is basically the name that, uh, of Joshua, or Yeshua, Jesus. It's, it's the name when you read through, and you, if you were reading the Hebrew of the Old Testament, when it says salvation, that's the word, the verb Yeshua. is, is very similar to the, it's basically pronounced the same as the word Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. The people needed salvation. That's what Christmas is all about. And so when we look at a manger scene and we see this beautiful little baby with an ox and a a donkey there we see this peaceful night we sing about silent night holy night all is calm all is we sing these songs about how peaceful this little town of bethlehem was and we picture it as just this happy beautiful moment but have you read revelation chapter 12 before I'm sure you have. Go to Revelation chapter 12 and look at the picture of what is taking place as Jesus is born. What is the backstory to Jesus being born in Revelation chapter 12? 
Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 says, and actually we'll go in verse 1. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now, a woman in Bible prophecy throughout the Bible you'll find represents God's people, especially when it's a pure woman. Then verse 2, it says this, Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now thankfully, I have never, I shouldn't say thankfully, because I would love to have a child, but I haven't been there at the moment of someone else having a child. But I have seen on the Discovery Channel before enough that I know that this moment is not a silent night, holy night, all is calm peaceful type of moment. Maybe those of you who have been there agree with me, but maybe some of you have been at a moment like that where it was calm and it was great. But this woman cries out in labor. She's in anguish. It's not a happy moment for her. In pain to give birth. Who is this child? This child, if you read on in Revelation 12, is Jesus Himself who is born through a specific woman, but this woman is representative of the church through God's people. Then verse 3 shows part of the angst, part of what's going on at this moment, at this beautiful manger scene that we picture. What else is there? Is something fearful, something horrific that I don't think if you sold a manger scene with this that anybody would buy it. Verse 3 continues, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. It would be bad enough if it was just a dragon there, but this dragon has seven heads, ten horns. He has crowns on them. And it would be bad enough if you just had a dragon there with this beautiful scene of a, a mother giving birth. But it goes on to say this, verse 4, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Now, I don't think that this will probably be the story that you'll be reading tonight around the Christmas tree, right? It's probably not the most inspiring Christmas moment. But this shows us something. That there is something grander, something bigger, something broader about Christmas than we usually grasp. There is a bigger conflict going on behind Christmas. At that moment, while the shepherds came and adored Jesus, while Mary was there holding Jesus, there was also an evil presence there who was desiring to do everything possible to take that human flesh and to devour it, to cause it to fall, to do whatever it took to cause Jesus to sin. Because Jesus had come in order to understand and to uh, come into a place where He could come into agreement with the life that you and I live. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about how since we came, we experienced human flesh that Christ also wanted to have that same human flesh. Hebrews 
chapter 2 and verse, we'll go to verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, inasmuch as all of the human race has partaken of flesh and blood, he too wanted to partake of that same thing so that through his death, he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. Verse 15 continues, And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he gives aid to the seed of Abraham. We needed a Savior. We desperately needed a Savior. And so Jesus came, and he took on human flesh, The God of the universe stepped down to this tiny planet. We looked at Philippians chapter 2 last week. Let's go there again. Just a reminder of this huge sacrifice that Christ has made for us. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, He was God. He had all the prerogatives of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God. But being in the form of God, he did not consider it robbery. or He didn't hang on to, he didn't cling to this power that he had sitting on the throne of the universe. But he made, he made himself of no reputation, verse 7 continues, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Jesus humbled himself. He emptied himself. He said, I don't want to enjoy all the goodness of heaven, all the power that I have. Well, there are human beings down on that tiny planet who are lost. Now, sometimes this perspective is not grand enough for us because we are humans and it's great to be a human, but we don't understand the bigness of God. And so it puffs us up and it brings God down to our size and it's really no big deal to us. But if you look again at that picture that I put up the past couple weeks of how huge the universe is, how when they took a a picture of a blank spot in the universe, They discovered all these galaxies, galaxies in every inch of this picture. And they estimate that there are are hundreds, a hundred trillion different galaxies out there, or each each galaxy has a hundred trillion stars in it, and that there's 10 to the 24th power stars. There's this massive universe that Jesus is the one who, in Psalm 33, it says that by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts came into being. And that He's the one who calls them all by name. And then we looked at this tiny picture of looking back from the Voyager probe that was spent out, sent out into our solar system. As it was leaving our solar system, they asked for it to take a picture looking back. And it caught a picture of planet Earth there. Planet Earth is this tiny little blue dot, this little tiny speck in the universe. And that's only from about five to six billion miles away. 
a picture of her. The God of the universe who breathes out stars. Some of those stars that are are bigger than the earth's orbit around the sun. Huge stars out there. The one who holds all of them in place. The one who measures the universe with a span of his hand. That God came and went to that tiny little speck of dust. And he became dust, human flesh, on that tiny little planet. How humbling is that? That the God of the universe would become that small. There's nothing really for us to compare it to. I mean, it, it's, it's, not, it's, it's, it's more infin, infinitely small than for me to say for us to become bacteria, for us to become a cockroach, for us to choose to live a life as a, a tiny insect, a tiny microbe. The God of the universe chose to humble Himself. But in all of Christ's teachings, He says something crucial that He knew was a principle of God's universe. And that is that those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is the way that God operates. It's the exact opposite of the way Satan's kingdom is. We looked at Isaiah chapter 14 where Lucifer said, I must ascend to the heights. I must become like the Most High. I want to puff myself up. This is the way the universe should work. It shouldn't be about giving, but it should be about taking. Just like our capitalistic society today, we're all about taking care of my needs and what I have. Whereas God is the great giver. The God who in everything gives lavishly, who humbles himself, who empties himself, who gives. But Lucifer challenged that concept of who God was and God's system of government. And it was through that that he swept that third of the angels out of heaven and deceived them. He, he led them to follow him and it cost them. And they were cast down to earth. But look at the deception that he tells to Adam and Eve. We're going to come back to Philippians 2, so hold your finger there. But go with me to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, look at the lie that Satan tells to Eve. Eve has been told, along with Adam, that there is one place in the garden that they shouldn't go to and they shouldn't eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. God has given them the liberty to go throughout the garden, to go anywhere, to fill the earth, to subdue it. But he says, there's one place I'm limiting you from. And that was the one place that the enemy had access to come and to share his deceitful idea of how the universe worked. So in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent shows up to Eve and tells her that Verse starting in verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Here's a commandment of God. God has told Adam and Eve, This is for your good. Do not do this. So what does the serpent, his very first lie to humanity? Verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, 
You will not surely die. There's no consequence for breaking God's commandment. There's no, it's no big deal. Just go ahead and do it. You will not surely die. But not only that, he goes on to say this in verse 5, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you taste of this fruit, if you go in this forbidden path, if you shake off God's commandments and restrictions in your life trying to hold you back, you're going to find this freedom, this liberty that's going to elevate you to a whole new status of existence. Just go ahead and try it out. I don't know about you, but I've bought into that lie a lot in my life. There's been a whole lot of times in my life where I know what God has said is best for my life, I know that he's told me that to do this is going to cause pain. It's going to cause hurt in my life. I know that he said that the consequences of sin is death. But for me, I buy that lie that somehow there's this freedom, there's this happiness, there's this pleasure that's going to come from going in the way that he's commanded me not to go. And so just like Eve, doing that small thing of taking that fruit and eating it, how often have I partaking of forbidden fruit in my life. Have you also had the same experience of me that it, it always ends up rotten? It always ends up feeling so terrible? And maybe not immediately, maybe not initially, but as time goes on, you begin to recognize in your life that the pattern of your life is beginning to spiral out of control. And you're recognizing that the system that the devil has sold you is corrupt. It's empty. It's meaningless. And to live this life of selfishness, to live this life of throwing off what God's commandments of love, to throw all that off really just ends up eating away your own soul. It ends up causing heartache in the lives around you. God has such a better way for us. And as He looked down and He saw Eve taking that fruit, biting eating from that fruit, choosing Satan's system over God's system. He said, I'm not going to let Satan have his way in this. In fact, he'd already planned for this. We're told in Ephesians that it was part of his counsel from eternity that he had planned that he was going to work out a plan of salvation should we fall. Look at the plan. This is verse 14. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. At this moment in time, there is an enmity between Eve and the serpent. She's buying into his lie. She's followed what he has told her to do. But God has promised, I'm going to come and I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Then it goes on to say, between your seed and her seed. You notice there in your Bible that it's capitalized seed. It's in the singular. And Paul points this out in Galatians that he's talking not just about the, the descendants of Eve, but it's talking specifically about that male child that that woman would bear, that the, the serpent would be seeking, that dragon would be trying to take out that child. 
But verse, it continues, he will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So through Christ, this promise is given that, that there's going to come a child and that child will crush Satan. He will deal a death blow to Satan. And it was only through humbling himself that the God of the universe came as a human, was born as a baby, and walked this planet like you and I walk this planet, that he was able to deal that death blow to Satan so that the whole universe could come to see the power of God's system of government. Go back to Philippians chapter 2 and you see the result of this humbling that Christ took upon himself. Philippians chapter 2, we continue, we, we read verses 5 through 8, but now in verse 9, after humbling himself in verse 8 and becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross, verse 9 continues, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every other name. It says, because he humbled himself, because he chose to take on human flesh, because he came down. In fact, Jesus even says that the Father loves him more because of what he chose to do in coming to save you. That's how much God loved you. When it says that, that verse that we're so familiar with, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, sometimes we think, well, God loves us because his Son came. No, God loved you, and so the Son came. And because the Son came, there's a greater love within God Himself, and there's a greater love for us. God came because He loved you. He saw you sitting here today, and He wanted you to be with Him throughout eternity. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that, that we are predestined for adoption as sons and daughters of God. His goal for you is to be with Him throughout eternity. And He said, I'll do whatever it takes. I'll go down to that tiny speck of a planet and I'll walk and live this life filled with humility. The life that, that every human being could identify with. I'll be homeless. Whatever you've gone through in your life, Christ has already been there. He's lived a humble carpenter's life. He's toiled away. He worked for 30 years, day in and day out, to support his family. He knows what you go through in your life. You see, God could say that he was love. God could say that his government was a good government. But until he came and demonstrated it, for you and I, it was just words. But the word, John 1 verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And John 1 goes on to say this though, and of His fullness we have received. Of His fullness you and I received because Jesus came and dwelt in human flesh. You and I have been exalted to a place that's higher than any of the created universe. Because now we are one with the Son of God. Humanity has been exalted to the very throne room of the universe. Friends, you hold a very special place in the heart of God. I hope this Christmas that you realize that Jesus adores you. That the greatest gift you could possibly give to Jesus this Christmas 
is your heart. Because he's crazy about you. He loves you. He adores you. He wants to spend eternity with you. He was willing to go to that tiny speck of a planet for you. Even if you were the only one who got it, if you were the only one who accepted his gift of salvation, he would have done it all just for you. That's how much he loved you. And the watching universe, as they have seen this taking place, as the angels have seen this, you know, at first, they didn't understand fully that Satan's system of government was corrupt, that the lies he was telling were false, that God's government really was a government of love. And if God had initially just zapped Satan and gotten rid of him, and imagine what that day would have been like. Imagine that as the angels came up to God and said, hey, where's Lucifer? Oh, Lucifer's gone. Well, where'd he go? When will he be back? Well, Lucifer, that beautiful covering cherub, he sinned. Sin, what's that? It's a really bad thing. It's the opposite of my character. Okay. He wasn't loving and he didn't obey my loving laws. Okay. So, so where is Lucifer now? He doesn't exist anymore. I blotted him out of existence. Oh, okay. Would you be willing to love a God like that? If you hadn't seen displayed all that is entailed in this great controversy? And so you see here in Philippians chapter 2 that it, goes, it says that <clears throat> therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, remember what Jesus means, he will save his people from their sins. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now sometimes we think of this as just every knee here on earth. That's not what it's talking about here. It says, every knee shall bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was through Jesus coming and being born as a baby that He dealt a death blow to Satan's kingdom. That's what He came to do. He came so that He could show us the character of God. God's name that was revealed to Moses. And that was a grand revelation to Moses that his, He was gracious and merciful, abounding in loving kindness. But it wasn't enough until the Word became flesh and that name was revealed to us in a human body walking around on this planet. 1 John chapter 4, or chapter 3 actually tells us specifically that Jesus came with a purpose to destroy. Did you know that? John chapter 3 and verse 17 tells us that He didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. But Jesus actually came and was born in that manger as a destroyer. Think about that this Christmas Eve as you worship Jesus, the baby who was born in a manger, that He was sent to destroy. Go to uh, 1 John chapter 3 with me. This is good news, my friends. 1 John chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. 
What an incredible gift. It took Jesus coming and becoming human flesh so that you and I could be brothers with Him so that we are adopted into the family of God. Behold what manner of love this is. Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God and it is not yet revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Friends, when Jesus comes back, he will have restored his image in his people. He will have restored that image of love. Those who are waiting for him, it says, will purify themselves just as he is pure. Let's keep reading. Verse 4, for whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Sin is a mystery. We don't understand how it came into existence in this universe. If there was a way to explain it, then there would be a way to explain that God is not just. But sin cropped up in Lucifer's heart. He decided that God's law was not just. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is turning away from God's law of love, God's law of giving, God's law of other-centered other-focused love. Sin is lawlessness, and you know that He was manifested to take away your sins. So Jesus was manifested to take away your sins. That's what the name Jesus means. He will save His people from their sins. And in Him, there is no sin. Whoever abides in Him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen Him nor known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. That's where this lie started. That's where this selfish focus came from, was from Lucifer in the very beginning, the devil. But then it goes on to say this, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. This is the purpose of Christmas. This is why Jesus came and was born in a manger as a baby. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested. What does it say? That He might destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came and was born as a baby that He might crush that mighty seven-headed dragon. That dragon that in your life has led you into so much pain and so much destruction. That dragon who keeps tripping you up, who's deceived you in your life, who's sold so many bags of lies to you. Jesus came to crush him, to destroy him. That's why he chose to come and be born on this little planet, because he loved you. And when your cherished, most loved friend is trapped by an enemy, what can you do except for go there and save them. Verse 9 continues, Whoever is born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. This is a beautiful picture that he's portraying here of Jesus coming and manifesting himself to destroy all that hurts you in your life to destroy all that tempts you in your life. Jesus showed up to give you a brand new life. Jesus showed up to save you from your sins. 
And it's really clear here what Jesus wants to do, isn't it? It says that whoever commits a sin also commits lawlessness in verse 4. And sin is lawlessness. But he was manifested to take away your sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Isn't that a beautiful thing? This is God's goal for you. Now the Greek there is the idea that you won't continue in sin. You won't keep sin. That sin won't be your mentality. That you won't be focused on sin. That you will have a right priority focused on Jesus. Focused on His kingdom. Focused on loving others and being focused on doing His will. Now, it's interesting. How does this take place in our lives? It says specifically in verse, well, verse 8 we read that For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. And verse uh, 6 says, whoever abides in Him doesn't sin. But verse 5 says, you know that He was manifested to take away your sins. So there's two ways that this takes place in our lives. One, Jesus came and was born. That's step one. Jesus being born in human flesh has revealed God's loving character in a way that has amazed the universe. But then it goes on to say in verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Step one, Jesus was born in a manger. Step two, Jesus to be born in you. You are to be a new creation. You are to be born again. What does that mean? I listened in a little bit to Elaine Smith's class this morning, and she was talking about how being born again is to have your emotions, your, your mind, your heart, to have new focus, new direction, in the direction of Christ's heart, Christ's motives, and Christ's law of love. To be born again is to be given a brand new heart to walk in His ways. And the beautiful thing is, it says that when He appears, we will see Him as He is and we will be like Him. We're going to have that same heart of love. Friends, there is power in the name of Jesus. In Acts 4.12, Peter, preaching, says that there is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. There's power, there's victory in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the name above every other name because it's the character that is above every other character. And the universe has come to see that because of the incarnation and because of the cross. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 with me. Ephesians chapter 2, sorry, Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is describing the incredible gift that's been given him to preach to the Gentiles. And he uses such beautiful language. We'll start in verse 8. It says, To me who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He says, it was grace, it was a gift that was given to me. This is Paul who goes around on this crazy missionary tour around Asia Minor 
where he is shipwrecked, he is stoned, he is beaten, he is thrown into prison. And Paul says, this was God's grace that sent me out to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Because it was all worth it. Jesus is so valuable. I treasure Jesus so much. I adore Him so much. God gave me this grace that I was able to go out and experience all of this by His grace. Then he continues, and to make all see what is the fellowship, that koinonia, that gathering together, of the mystery. It's something beyond our comprehension, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Christ Jesus. This is a, a mystery that had been hidden in God that the universe hadn't quite been able to grasp. The prophets throughout history, First Peter tells us that, that they had longed to, to understand what the Spirit of God was indicating in them about Christ. And it said that these were things which angels desired to look into. So this mystery, which was from the beginning of the ages, has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. And then verse 10, notice this. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Do you catch that? I don't think so. Let me read this again. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. That's you. That's me. That's the followers of Christ. Those who in Revelation, it says He's going to place His name in your forehead. He's, in Hebrews chapter 8, He's going to write His law on your heart. It says, so that through the church, His manifold wisdom will be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Do you see the high calling that you have in your life? The God of the universe has come, become human flesh, been exalted as your high priest to the right hand of the all-powerful God of the universe, and He has done it all so that He could give you power to live the same life that He lived. As 1 John 3 said, to be pure, pure even as He is pure. So that when you abide in Him, like 1 John 3 says, that you will no longer continue in sin. And through that, as Jesus takes and redeems you and me, who have lived corrupt lives, who have lived selfish lives, when the watching universe looks down and sees human beings and their lives are flipped upside down, it creates wonder and amazement among them. And it, it helps them to look to God and to recognize God's wisdom because they see in you a miracle that they can't understand, that they can't grasp, that the God of the universe would do this and that He's capable of transforming a life like your life, a life like my life. Because of this, Paul goes on to say, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Paul continues in verse 14, and we're going to close with this prayer. Verse 14, For this reason 
I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. The name of Jesus. We are all a part of a family because of God's name in us, the Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. His name has infinite value for you. Because of the name of Jesus, you can conquer. In the name of Jesus, you can live a victorious life. It's the name above every other name. That He would grant you, verse 16, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length, and depth, and height, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You see what Paul wants for you? He says, I bow my knees for this purpose. I'm pleading with God that He would make known to you the heights, the depths of His love, that He would fill you with strength in the inner man, that you would know the love of God which surpasses knowledge so that you could be filled up with all the fullness of God, so that you too can have the life of Christ in you. Christ came and was born to destroy the works of the devil. And now He wants to be born in you and me to destroy the works of the devil in our life. Because when we abide in Him, that sin in our life becomes distasteful. It becomes hateful to us. It becomes something we want nothing to do with. When He transforms our heart, when He writes His law of love on our heart, we begin to not want to be selfish anymore. The more time we spend fixing our eyes on Jesus and on His loving character, the more that we realize that everything else is empty, nothing else matters but to live our lives for Jesus. That's my prayer for us this Christmas, is that we here in Templeton Hills would know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. In the end of his high priestly prayer, Jesus, in John chapter 17, as he was praying, he said, Father, I've made known my name to them. I've manifested it to them. And Father, I pray that my name may be in them so that they may be in you and that your love may be in them. It's through the name of Jesus that you are filled with love. Love that conquers all the selfishness, all the pride of this dark world. It's through the love of Jesus that we overcome. So I don't know where you're at today. But if you're like me, you may be like some of the other generals around John Pershing. They were happy to finally be able to sign the armistice and finally have the peace peace treaty signed to end World War I. It looked like a good answer to all of the death, all of the mayhem that was going on around them. If they could just put an end to it, it was worth signing off on anything. If people just agreed to stop fighting. 
But John Pershing knew something. He said, you can't stop that short. You've got to crush out the enemy. You've got to keep going. And historians agree or disagree on whether it was the right thing or the wrong thing. But follow this illustration. If they had continued and they had crushed out the forces of Germany and they had put an end to this desire for world domination... World War II wouldn't have happened. Historians agree whether they agree that the treaty was right or wrong, whether they agree that it was done in the right way. They agree that World War I led to World War II. There was a 20-year gap in between, but it was the angst and the, the frustration, everything that took place in World War I that led to World War II. But because they signed a peace treaty and they held back and didn't finish the battle... World War II happened, and millions and millions more people died. Nuclear weapons were developed and exploded, and this planet has become this more chaotic, more fearful place from the most fearful war that we have ever seen because they stopped short of full victory. And I realized that in my own life, time and time again, because as I look at the battle that I'm fighting, I'm thinking, man, this is too difficult. This is, I'm tired of fighting with sin. I'm tired of, of going through all of this. I'm tired of, of trying to, to have self-control in my life. I'll just believe in Jesus and just keep on going, living the way that I'm living. Some things are just, I just can't do it. And you're right. I'm right to say that. That it's just too much. But if, like the generals, we only look at what we're able to do in our own strength and we say we need to stop, we need to sign this peace treaty, we need to, okay, look, if the devil can only have this area of my life, I'll keep going to church and everything will look okay and I'll keep going, I'll sign a peace treaty with him and I'll forget about those other parts and I'll leave them as his territory. In my life, too often I've said that and I realize that Jesus want something bigger. He was manifest in the flesh to crush the works of the devil. He wants to give me full and complete victory, not in my own strength. If I, when I rely on my own strength, I, I want to give up. But when I surrender to Christ, when I allow His name to give the victory in my life, He can do incredible things. In closing, in the Review and Herald, February 5, 1895, it says this, When we surrender all we have and are to God, when we give all to God, absolutely everything, and are placed in trying and dangerous positions, coming in contact with Satan, we should remember that we shall have victory in meeting the enemy in the name and power of the conqueror. There's power in the name of Jesus. He's already overcome on your behalf. He understands what you're going through. And He longs to give you and I a complete and full victory. Continues and says this, Every angel would be commissioned to come to our rescue when we thus depend upon Christ rather than permit that we should be overcome. He's already given you everything in Christ. Jesus has promised in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, since, he, since God didn't withhold His only begotten Son, how would He not with Him freely give you all things? 
So my appeal to you today is simple. It's an appeal to my heart too. Don't make peace treaties with the devil. Don't tell him it's all right. You can have that part of my life until Jesus comes back. Continue to plead with Jesus, to claim the name of Jesus, to focus on Jesus' loving character, and to continue to ask Him for victory in your life. Don't assume that you're just going to go on living in sin, but let Him destroy the works of the devil in your life. If that's your desire today, I want to invite you to stand as I pray. Oh God, we're standing not because we have any strength to overcome any of the temptations of the enemy, but we're standing because you have the name which is above every other name, the name which all of the universe bows the knee and gives you glory, the name which you are soon coming back In Revelation 19, it tells us, it says, King of kings and Lord of lords and written on your, is written on your thigh, the name which is above every other name. Thank you, Jesus, for being manifest to destroy the works of the devil in my life, in our lives. Oh God, help us not to sell you short. Help us to be led to adore you, to love you so much that we would truly have that enmity that you've promised to give us. Lord, we claim the promise of Genesis 3.15, that you will place enmity in our hearts, enmity towards everything that separates us from you. We want your love. We want your character in our lives so that this world, so that this universe can see you living in us and loving through us. Lord, bless my friends. Along with Paul, I pray that they would know the heights and depths and length and breadth of the love of God which surpasses knowledge. Lord, fill us with the fullness of God, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.